Welcome to The Staff Room, a podcast which takes a look into the world of education. In this series, we chat to inspirational educators far and wide about pedagogy, shed light on great practice, and discuss new and exciting ideas. My name is Tessa Johnson, and I'm sitting here with Michael Royale, and we're coming to you from Corpus Christi College in Perth, Australia. In this episode, we'll be talking about the vital role vocabulary plays in learning. We'll be chatting to UK-based English teacher, author and director of research, Alex Quigley. Alex will be speaking to us about his recent book, Closing the Vocabulary Gap, and give insightful expert knowledge on the importance vocabulary plays in the curriculum. Alex will share evidence-based, easy-to-use strategies that help us to create word-rich classrooms. Stay with us to hear Alex's expert, balanced and practical ideas. I've tried to, in the book, have a better understanding of the problem of the gap and then start to bring it down to actual practical strategies around reading, around talk, um, around explicit vocabulary instruction. And I think there are some really good, useful um, strategies and things to understand that can improve teachers' practice in the classroom. I am Tessa Johnson. And I'm Michael Royale. And this is The Staff Room. So, Michael, we're talking to Alex Quigley today, and uh, I know that you've been doing a little bit of reading, particularly with his book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you've read so far and what you're looking forward to most? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I'm just excited to actually learn how we can integrate vocabulary into our lessons a bit more effectively because I was reading some of the stuff about um, one of the concepts in particular was this three-tier approach, and basically um, it's this idea that the bottom tier is, you know, basic understanding of words and then working your way up each tier so that you're working using more academic based language in your everyday vocabulary and also your writing so I'd like to know how I can approach that and also integrate it into my students writing so when you say basic words we're thinking like you me her him yeah even ones like everyday language so person house mother father Oh yeah, just like just things that little kids use. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I'm I'm pretty interested in um the process of all the, the science really of etymology and sort of where words come from. And I think that you know it's always just been a bit of a novelty. Like, oh, do, do you know that this word actually originates from this? And I know particularly we've been studying Greek mythology with the year sevens, and there's quite a lot of scope there to sort of relate that to. Okay, well, you know that word there actually, um, you know, developed in this time and became into this word that we use today. But I want to know how we can use that in the curriculum because, like I said, that's a novelty. But mm-hmm. where have we got room in this super crowded curriculum to fit this really, really cool thing? Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm pretty interested to see what Alex has to say about that. Yeah, definitely. It's really fascinating etymology. So you're right. It would be good to see how that can be integrated effectively Ooh, yes. into our classroom. That's right. Yeah. So let's make start. Yep. Let's do it. With nearly 40,000 followers on Twitter, UK-based Alex Quigley joins us today via Skype to share his educational expertise. All right, so uh, welcome to the show, Alex. Could you give our listeners just a little bit of background about yourself and your work, please? Okay, so um, my name's Alex Quigley. Um, I've been an English teacher for 15 years um, in York, um, for the last few years, um, I began to write a blog, um, became um, a columnist for TES and Teach Secondary, um, and ended up writing books for teachers. Um, and the last book, um, which has been um, 
quite successful is closing the vocabulary gap. Um, from the summer, um, I joined the Education Endowment Foundation, um, a charity that supports schools with um, research projects, and its aim is to close the gap between um, disadvantaged pupils and their advantaged peers. So at what point did you sort of decide um, when you were teaching to to branch out and, and have that sort of focus area? Um, I think I was about seven or eight years in. Um, I was a middle leader at the time. I was lead, leading a large English department. Um, and I just found that there were a lot of changes going on. I was expected to make um, quick decisions. And I kind of realized just how much I didn't know. Um, so I started to look outside of school for answers, um, started to read more, um, and also joined um, Twitter and quite quickly just recognized that there was actually, from the people I was reading, books like Dylan William and others, that they were actually live on Twitter debating these points. There was quite a healthy um, community of teachers who were um, writing themselves who are asking similar questions. So I felt like um, I found a tribe that was kind of asking similar questions to myself. Um, and then as a way as tried to kind of understand um, my own practice and try to, to improve it, I started to write about it. Um, and that just kind of mushroomed um, into the kind of role I have today, which I've just stepped out teaching. Um, I assume I'll go back at some point. Um, but this role of kind of broker where I've kind of, I look at research evidence. I kind of look at um, aspects like reading or, or vocabulary, and I try and share back um, with an audience of teachers um, what might be most useful for them. And I try to distill some of the complexity into messages that teachers can, um, you know, find useful. Yeah. Awesome. And I know we, we really, um, we're very, very interested in particularly the vocabulary side because we are both English teachers and um, we know that vocabulary, I'm not sure what it's like, obviously similar in the UK, but in Australia, it's it's uh, definitely a big problem in skills, mm. uh, sorry, in schools, uh, kids not having a, a wide enough vocabulary. Yeah, definitely. I think it's global, really. Um, I don't think um, it, it doesn't just sit with the English language either, but predominantly the English language, because of its complexity, does seem to stand out. Um, and I think what we realise the world over from Australia to America to England is that there is a special language of school and that that academic language is something that needs to be taught, needs to be understood. And that, and that a lot of teachers haven't necessarily been supported to be able to do that. So I think that's one of the reasons why the book's proves, proven a success is it's tried to um, tackle what is a really live problem for teachers. And that's a great segue into our next question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've spoken a lot about the book already, and uh, I can already say that we're all already very inspired by it, and we would recommend it for, you know, countless teachers. But can you actually tell us what you mean by the vocabulary gap and what your book actually sets out to do? Yeah, so I think there's a lot of research, um, decades old from America, from the UK. Um, I assume there's, there's equivalent research in Australia, although I couldn't cite it, um, that makes clear that there's a distinctive gap um, in the early language experience and the the actual you know language that children possesses um, to talk. So before children ever get to school, there is you know they live in a language environment. They have 
parents and families and an environment around them um, that supports their early language growth. By the time they get to school, the development of their language is already pretty critical. So we know that your vocabulary age five correlates with your performance um, at the end of school. And actually, from, from research, um, longitudinal research, that your vocabulary age five also links with your job, with, correlates with your wages, and even your mental health and well-being. And what we know is that if your language early on in school, if there's a gap and you are word poor, then you struggle to close that gap between your word rich peers. They go on to do well at school. Children who are word poor tend to struggle at school. Their school qualifications aren't as good and it impacts their lives. So that gap is really well established. And for me, um, it was to try and mirror that um, back to people. I was talking to lots of teachers from across the world around issues with academic texts from teaching in science, uh, not just teaching in English, from teaching um, subject domains like history and geography. Um, and this gap is something that's hidden in plain sight. So children just don't quite access um, the reading in class. They don't quite understand the passage in the textbook. They don't quite get the question in the examination. And all of these small losses for word poor children seem to aggregate. And actually, it's one of the factors, not a singular factor, but one of the factors that seems to determine school success or failure. Um, for me, I think the evidence is really clear about the gap and that it exists and that it correlates strongly with material wealth and material poverty. So if you are word poor, you're likely to have less financial supports and, and that your family environment might be limited in terms of language experience. Um, and then what I wanted to also probe is what is the evidence around how we close the gap? That evidence isn't as strong um, because it's a complex issue, it's multifaceted, um, but I've tried to, in the book, have a better understanding of the problem of the gap and then start to bring it down to actual practical strategies around reading, around talk, um, around explicit vocabulary instruction. And I think there are some really good, useful um, strategies and things to understand that can improve teachers' practice in the classroom. So it's not too late after five to, to actually, I mean, that's quite fascinating that at five years old, that so much has already, that so much has already basically, time's been lost and time's been wasted if you haven't you haven't developed that vocab but you're saying teachers like in, in upper school could could we close that gap still or is it is it too late well no it isn't too late and I think that kind of determinism would be pretty depressing for all of us really um so I've always taught um children over 11 years of age um so always kind of at that latter stage of school and the reality is that you know if you've got a small vocabulary age five it is harder to access the academic curriculum, you might be slower. Um, but I think one of the factors is that if we can recognize what the issue is, if we can spot this problem, then we can address it. So one of the factors for you know, a, a student age 15 is that if they've had you know, countless school years of struggling with reading, struggling with kind of articulating ideas and subject domains, it is going to be much harder to bring that back and to support that child um, to flourish. But actually on a very small level, on a daily level, a teacher 
can just mediate what they're communicating from their subject. They can just um, pre-teach some vocabulary. And it might actually be a very small number of um, vocabulary items that the teacher teaches. But that on that given day, that is a small win, a small improvement. And what, and what we find is that there are small, complex groups of words that are taught for older students and that if we teach them a little better, then that can have a direct impact on their performance in school examinations and qualifications. So I don't think, um, you know, children's futures are determined at five. You know, for in, a, in places in the world, some children haven't come to school before five. So we can address it and we can address it um, much later. I think the ideal is to understand the problem, tackle it early, and then for teachers who teach older students to really understand where those problems might have originated and, and still address them as best we can. Excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, so we also really like your ideas on word depth and making children more word conscious. Can you actually explain what you mean by this and how it can be done? Yeah, okay. So I think one of the simple um, kinds of messages that I put across in the book is that, you know, in reality, those who are successful at school and beyond school, they have a large vocabulary. And researchers like David Crystal and others might offer the statistic that we have a receptive vocabulary, words that we know between around 50 and 60,000 words. It's a lot of words. Now, we don't use them all in daily speech. We actually use a very small number. But in school, you know, when we're reading a, a book, then we can access a lot of words because we've got a very broad vocabulary. We know lots of words. Now, what's most important is not just how many words you know, it's how well you know those words. So some words have got you know, multiple layers of depth. So the word break and the word break has got 76 different meanings. Um, it becomes a compound word for breakdown, breakup. It's part of our everyday fabric of language. But how deep you know break is that you know how it changes in different contexts. You know all the different other words that it relates to and you have a rich, deep knowledge of that seemingly simple word. Now, most adults and, and people who've been successful in school particularly, they've got that rich depth of knowledge about vocabulary. And the more words you know, the more connections between um, existing words and the easier you find it to learn new words. So word depth is that critical depth of language knowledge. And you kind of hide it. You don't, you know, you don't walk around and use it greatly in speech, but it's there and it's almost your kind of secret weapon when you're in school as a student to access new learning um, and you prove a success when you possess that word depth. Now, what we know is that it is this kind of hidden kind of expertise that successful students possess and it's something that we need to make more explicit, particularly for children who are novices, particularly who are children who you know might be relatively word poor, they might know as many um, vocabulary items. So word consciousness is an attempt to label that explicit process that as a teacher, you can be very explicit around helping students understand that words have layers of meaning, that words are complex, words have histories, words live in families, words have parts. So um, take another word, a word cracking. Well, cracking in England for a lot of people would have 
a kind of a, a very general use. Cracking is a bit of a superlative. You know, something's good, it's cracking. But if you're studying chemistry, well, then cracking is a very specific um, academic word, and it's related to um, very specific processes, petrochemical kinds of breakdowns, etc. Now, knowing when to use cracking, know that cracking has a very academic use and a very general use is word depth. But children don't often notice that words have different meanings, words change in context, and that you need to be very dexterous, you need to be very skillful about understanding the, those shifts in vocabulary. So another one would be prime. So the word prime for a mathematician is very specific. For myself as an English teacher, prime has that general meaning about kind of something that's first, something that's um, you know prime. Um, and, all, and me on a personal level, um, prime kind of makes me think about Amazon and makes me think about my debts, um, about all the stuff I'm buying on Amazon Prime. Um, and and this these layers of meaning, this word consciousness, this is something we can teach. So we can not just teach children that a word has a general meaning and a specific academic meaning. We can introduce words in terms of their history, their etymology. We can break words down um, into the constituent parts. So one of the really strongest ways to teach mathematical terms and to teach scientific terms, these, these really fancy complex words of the school curriculum, is to break them down into their parts because most of those words derive from Greek and Latin roots. So we can teach those roots, roots like photo. And then when we're teaching photosynthesis, it can be a very small feature of how we do it but just helping children recognize that photo is a common root helps them understand that there are four or five more scientific words that begin with that root photo and that when they encounter those new tricky scientific words they'll have a better understanding and be able to grow their vocabulary and this is where when you have these explicit strategies, you can begin to see how you can close that vocabulary gap in the classroom. Yeah, so just um, expanding actually further on etymology. Um, now, you've got some great resources on etymology. You've got a, a fantastic PowerPoint um, that sort of looks at a vary of, um, I guess, parts of words and their roots. Um, now, are there, can you think of any other more practical, uh, more practical ways that we can use these in the classroom other than just sort of getting through, getting the kids interested in them? So I think with etymology, I think it, it twins with morphology. So etymology is the history of words. Morphology is those parts of words and they link to many others. And I think what teachers have to do for their school curriculum. So in Australia, there'll be distinctive differences between what words are most important for teachers um, and what words they need to explicitly teach, whereas others they can just encounter and just be conscious that it might be tricky for students. So for me, I'd want teachers, it might be a group of science teachers or geography teachers, to think hard about what are the key academic terms that children need to know to access their subject and to flourish. And that selection process does begin to narrow down some of the vocabulary choices that we think we need to teach. Um, there might be words like photosynthesis that we've, we've always taught. We might, we might just teach them um, explicitly and teach them uh, in slightly more depth and more effectively, I'd hope. 
So I think when the teacher selects those words, then it's going back to what would be the breakdown of that word that would provide some memorable hooks so a child understands it and a child remembers it. And for me, etymology often just gives a little memorable hook for remembering the word. Morphology gives another hook to remember the words, but also it connects it to other words, which, which is another little hook. So for me, the PowerPoint is just an exemplification of how you can break down words. I think the crucial thing and the crucial work for teachers is to think, right, well, what are the crucial words for my subject? What are the academic terms that children need to know? And then I can apply these same principles to any of those words. And I might need a PowerPoint. It might just be I'm introducing um, an academic term. I've got you know a couple in that lesson. Um, and I'm going to just write them on the board. I'm going to explain them. I'm going to ask a question of students. You know, do you notice this word has any familiar word parts? And that just that question, it promotes word consciousness. It gets children, gets students thinking about, about those words. And it just offers a small but distinctive memorable hook. So the PowerPoint's just an exemplification of how you can select um, words and break them down. What I've seen in response to the book, um, and I've seen them shared on Twitter and more widely, is that some teachers have taken the academic word list, um, which is from New Zealand, actually, um, from a researcher called um, Avril Coxhead. So they are 570 of the most common words used in academic texts. And particularly at university level. So some people are taking that academic word list and using that list and breaking that down and bringing, you know, bringing out the morphology and strategies around those. Other people, I've seen um, science teachers where they've taken the science roots from the chapter on word roots and they have just selected the words from, from their subjects, so it could be biology, and they've used a the word roots and created the display. So I've seen a lovely display where um, students are entering the classroom and just that visibility of the language of science um, as they enter the classroom. And the crucial thing, obviously, is that the teacher follows that up with some really good practice around teaching those words. You know, we can't just have wallpaper. Um, so I think teachers have taken it in different ways. I think you need to apply it on a subject specific level and a teacher needs to select what they think are the powerful words to use. Well, that's actually a really good segue into the next question, which is on teaching academic vocabulary. Um, so we actually liked your reference to the three tier, three tiered hierarchy for words. Can you actually explain this to our listeners? Yes. Yeah, so one of the um, big influences on my book, Closing the Vocabulary Gap, was the work um, of the researchers in America, um, Isabel Beck and her team. Um, and what they did is create a really useful um, kind of heuristic, a shortcut um, to consider words in academic texts particularly. So they created a three tiers of language. Um, tier one is just our everyday language and words that we use in talk, we wouldn't consider we need to teach them um, as in the classroom. And then you have tier two, which I think actually was most prominent because it was this is a lot of the hidden vocabulary, the academic sophisticated words of school. So they can just be 
quite general. The word sophisticated, I think, would be a tier two vocabulary. We don't use it commonly in speech. Um, it's something um, that we would use in academic writing. We would see it in academic texts and textbooks, etc. Words like explain. So these exam command words that they sit there in, a, in an exam question and we can often assume that a child would know them. But for specific exam questions, explain means very, you know, very specific, complex things. So tier two language is language that actually just adorns all of the academic language of school. It's what makes it different pretty much from our normal everyday language when we watch TV, you know, when we're texting friends. We don't use that sophisticated academic language of school. And in the book, I pick out lots of passages from um, texts from younger children as well as older children. And what you see if you're reading a history text is you might see some specific historical um, terms, but actually you see words like ridicule and relic and relinquish. And these are just the sophisticated words that are present in lots of academic texts. And that's tier two. And what Isabel Beck and her team propose is that more than ever, we need to be aware that they are barriers to understanding for many word poor children. And we should consider how we explicitly teach some of those words. We can't teach all of them, but we can deliberately teach some of them. And that would help close the word gap. Um, finally, tier three. And if you see this as a pyramid, tier three is the top of the pyramid. So there are far fewer words, but these are the domain subject specific words, those you know, fancy terms um, that every subject teacher needs to teach and a student needs to know. So ones I've mentioned so far, like photosynthesis um, for an English teacher myself, you know, the word metaphor, personification, simile, these are tier three words. Um, and I've taught them. You know, throughout my career, I've taught metaphor um, too many times to um, recall, um, often badly. Um, but they are words that we need to be conscious of and deliberately teach. And I think when you start to look at texts with this tiers of vocabulary in mind, it starts to reveal the challenges of the academic reading that you pose to children. And I think for many teachers, particularly those teachers who aren't necessarily um, had a lot of training around language and around communication. So science teachers invariably aren't very expert about the language communication of their subject. They're scientists and they are expert in that language, but they're almost too expert and they can't quite see how a lot of these vocabulary items are barriers to understanding. So one of the strategies I always pose to schools who I'm talking about vocabulary to is that bring a text you're using that week, bring a text you've used yesterday or you're using tomorrow, and let's look at that text and let's take a pen to it or a highlighter and let's just identify those tiers of language, that tier two and tier three vocabulary. And what you find, it could be a, a passage of 300 words, which is about average page of a textbook. What you find is that many of those words, you start circling as tier two, and then you start recognizing, oh, there's about 20 of those words. That, that's quite demanding. And then you start to recognize that the vocabulary of your academic subject is very tricky. And I think you've probably always known it, but it becomes much more clear through this tiers of vocabulary. And then you can start addressing it. And then you can, as a teacher, 
actually be more word conscious. And every time that you're talking um, about your academic subject, every time you're selecting some reading or you're going through a textbook or you're reading a poem or, or you're reading a scientific um, explanation, you need to be conscious of those tiers of vocabulary. Just going back to sort of, um, you know, the teacher sort of expectations, do you think that over time teachers are becoming more lenient about that vocabulary? So we talked about, you know, the, the vocabulary levels being quite an issue in school sort of globally. Do you think teachers are sort of, you know, accepting too many of those tier one words as, as being okay without actually accessing tier two? I sort of I think of my kids that I teach, and they use a lot of tier one and a lot of tier three they use a lot of subject specific but they almost don't access that many tier two so i i think part of the issue is that it's again this issue is hidden in plain sight that for people who are professional who are teachers then ultimately they've been a success at school and they have a very large vocabulary but you know they have sixty thousand words in their word hoard and it's really hard to unravel all of that expertise and to start to see texts and to even hear, you know, students and, and consider where the gaps in their vocabulary might be. Um, so I don't think it's a kind of a relaxation. I think it's a knowledge gap. I think teachers aren't going to be as word conscious or as aware about what words you might need to explicitly teach, what words you might need to check a student understands because it's just not something you've been trained to do. And it's sophisticated and it's subtle and it's there all the time. And if you're dealing with you know, a class of 20 students and you've got to kind of get through your lesson, so to speak, then it's one of those things that just kind of falls by the wayside. And what I'm seeing is a lot of schools who are trying to be more conscious about talk in their classroom, try to be quite disciplined around um, the language students use and where they're using their kind of their own everyday language, which is fine, but they're recasting that. They're challenging students in, in lots of subtle ways around just improving their vocabulary. And it might be that, you know, a child uses, you know, gives a, an explanation that's quite basic, you know, tier one vocabulary in their own words. And then the teacher just lifts that up in, in reiterating back to them. So one of the words that um, I use is the word sweat. So we all know what sweat means, and it's just a, you know, an everyday occurrence. And that would be a word that a child, tier one word, a, t a child would use in class. Now, if we're in biology or if we're in you know, physical education, then sometimes we need them to write in a more sophisticated way than sweat. You, sweat wouldn't you know, kind of do the job in an examination uh, for biology around the body's kind of functions. The word perspire is that tier two version of sweat. And it's just that level above. And it's that academic approach to language that just doing that on a, on a daily basis, almost unconsciously, it becomes a habit that once you start just shifting that language in students' writing, in students' talk, and you raise that expectation around the language we use in school, then you can start making a subtle, small difference. But all of those small differences seem to aggregate. And then students begin to use that language more confidently. But that takes training. That takes coaching and support. So, you know, I've been a teacher for 15 years. 
And it wasn't until very late in my teaching career that this was anything that was raised to me as something I should consider. And then that was pretty much self-taught. So how can we expect a science teacher, a history teacher to be able to take on all of this understanding, enact it in the classroom if they've not been trained to do so? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, we're going to make a little bit of a diverge now and talk about spelling. Um, now, spelling is something that I guess a lot of teachers complain about, particularly not just actually English teachers, all teachers. And um, we sort of wonder, you know, are spelling tests effective? We don't really use spelling tests much in high school, um, in particularly over here. Um, so are they effective? And what are some ways teachers can best teach spelling? Okay, so... I think in England, we, we have something called the SPAG test. So in primary schools for younger children, um, they get tested on their knowledge of spelling, punctuation, and grammar. Um, and also in secondary school now, um, in high school, um, spelling, punctuation, and grammar has become more high profile in terms of examinations across all the different subjects. So it's had a little bit of a kind of renaissance um, shall we say, kind of a bit, there's been a bit of a shift back to this kind of traditional perspective of we need really high standards of spelling. Um, and for me, I'm completely fine with that. I think actually a little bit like using sophisticated vocabulary, being able to spell is an important life skill. Um, you don't always have, you know, spelling tools, translate tools. And um, actually, spelling isn't just about being accurate with words, because for me, Spelling is one of those indicators of having word depth, of actually knowing vocabulary and language really confidently. And for me, spelling tests have become the dominant mode of teaching over in England. Um, you know, the weekly spelling test, here's your 10 words, here's your 20 words, learn them through the week. And what we see, the most common strategy for these tests is look of a right check. I don't know if that's familiar. Yeah, um, look at the word cover it, you know, try and write it out again and then check whether you've got that accurately. And as a single strategy, it's okay. You know, it's not going to kind of damage any students, you know, and kind of, you know, have them in um, fits of tears. But it's actually a really limited strategy. It relies on visual memory, which is quite an ineffective um, strategy. So if you've got a spelling test and it's low stakes and students aren't stressed about it they think oh this is useful it might even be very fun you know some teachers can you know can skillfully angle a spelling test that's actually an enjoyable competitive thing um but if your only strategy is to look at 10 words a week and to get children to try and visually memorize them then they're not really going to take a great deal from that they're not going to take general spelling patterns and apply them in their writing more generally beyond the very small number of words you've selected. So the testing effect by practicing um, learning something in a test actually helps you remember things. Doing tests isn't a bad thing. If they're low stakes, far better, and it, they can be a real tool for learning. If you want to get, to get a student to revise for an examination, then self-testing is a really good thing. You might be using flashcards or whatever else. So testing per se, I'm fine with keep it low stakes you know it could be fun it could be interesting but if your one strategy is to try and get students to memorize those words on the spelling test then you're probably wasting quite a few minutes per week quite a few hours 
um, of the school curriculum. For me, this is where actually training and making your teaching word rich and full of the strategies around word histories, etymology, word parts. If you actually start teaching vocabulary explicitly, or you're more disciplined and structured about how you teach vocabulary, I think every teacher already does, but if you're a bit more structured about that, then actually you can teach vocabulary knowledge, and that is spelling knowledge. Because if you think about morphology and word parts, well, understanding the root of the word gives you then half the spelling of the word invariably. Often the etymology of the words is what really trips up um, children of the English language, because our language is really complex. It's borrowed from over 300 languages in the world. So our language links letters to sounds, and that's one strategy. But also, we've got these odd spellings that are thousands of years old because we really like the idea that that word had a Latin root. So if you th take the word debt, what's the odd, funny th thing about the spelling of the word debt? The B. <laughs> the B, yeah. 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 And, and that doesn't fit with our kind of phonic understanding, the sound of the word. So debt with the B um, is because it's got Latin roots and debitarum. And, and actually the Latin has been preserved in the spelling, oddly, you know, you could argue, but that also links to other words where you've got these letters that are preserved, you know, they're kind of relics from, a, from an older language. So what you can be doing as you teach vocabulary, and if you teach the history of some of the words, you teach the word parts, you are giving students the answers to the spelling of those words. And not only that, you're giving them a deep knowledge and understanding of not just the vocabulary, but the thing. But, you know, word knowledge is world, world knowledge. So for me, spelling can be a rich, you know, great opportunity. And one of the examples that I pose in the book, and I, and I pose it quite regularly, is that lots of this is, again, kind of part of our experience, but it's hidden from us. So the word ghost, I'll pose to a group of teachers, you know, why does ghost have the H in? And... I always pose that question. There's sometimes one person who ruins it who actually knows the answer. Um, but invariably, no one in the room knows the roots of the word ghost and why it has a H in it. seems a bit of an anomaly. And the story behind it, and it, it, there is a story, and that's a good thing because it makes it memorable, is that H is a 500-year-old mistake. That when William Caxton brought the printing presses to England, um, he also brought his Flemish assistants, um, his European assistants, because no, no English people could work the printers. And the word geest with a H um, means ghost in Flemish. And one of his Flemish assistants popped the H in. Um, it hadn't really existed before. It was G-O-S-T, um, ghost, ghost. Um, this assistant popped the H in. And for 500 years, we've kept that mistake. And for some children's spelling, it's ghastly, you know, it's G-H, um, it's odd. But once you hear that and understand that singular story, it's pretty hard to forget it. You know, that, and that offers one spelling, and it might offer a little cue for ghastly, and you could link ghost and ghastly together. But actually, just it, what it does is give that consciousness that, okay, some of these words are odd, but they're odd for a reason. 
So when you see a word like coffee, which is you know, just kind of part of our everyday lives, you might look at that and think there are not many words that look like coffee that have a double F and double E. It's a bit of an odd word. Okay, so that word is probably a foreign word. We've probably borrowed that word from somewhere. Where is that word from? And then very small amount of digging will take you, again, via Europe to North Africa. And that will show you that the English language has borrowed. It's loaned lots of words from other languages. That's good knowledge to have. Some of the spellings are because of historical factors. And our language comes from Latin and Greek roots. And that's good knowledge to have. And that some of our spelling is consistent around how the word sounds and the phonic and phonic patterns, the sound patterns in words and how they can be spelled in different um, patterns. That's good knowledge to have. So for me, I don't think we need to have hours in the week teaching spelling. I think we can teach vocabulary, teach the language of school well, richly, deeply, and it will make for far superior spelling from students in our classes. Yeah, excellent. So I could have just listened to that for ages. I always find that really interesting. <laughs> a great memorable hook there. And I like that term you used before, memorable hook, because that is, yeah, I'm definitely never going to forget that story about the ghost. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things I, I take it from um, E.D. Hirsch, um, the American um, researcher, and he talks about mental Velcro. And that actually, if you think about Velcro, it's just countless thousands of tiny hooks. And that's what vocabulary is for school, actually. If you've got a big vocabulary, you've got many more hooks. So when you're in a science lesson and there's a really tricky new concept you're being taught, you've got more to hook onto. You've got more knowledge of the world. You've got more words. So when you find new, tricky academic language, academic ideas, you're better prepared to tackle them. And it's the same for spelling and it's the same for school, ultimately. So I think think the idea of how do we hook children's curiosity and then how do we give them memorable hooks to, you know, really take spelling, take vocabulary and make it part of their understanding is really crucial. Excellent. Um, so our lucky last question, we're going to talk a little, just a little bit about reading as well. And uh, as English teachers, we quite often recommend reading to students and, and to parents when they ask, you know, how can my child uh, expand their vocabulary? Um, so what should we know about actually teaching reading effectively? Because as you mentioned before, kids are able to make sense of texts while they're skipping lots of words they don't know. They're just sort of reading between the lines and making the meaning. So how can we actually teach them to read effectively? Do they need to look at a dictionary every time they see a word they don't know? Or what's a good strategy for that? Okay, so so reading, I think, is the master skill of school. I think reading is where all of that complex tier two, tier three language is most prominent. And I'm not saying talk isn't incredibly valuable. It is. But the children's book that I read with my son tonight will be will have more sophisticated vocabulary than our fantastic conversation right now. So what we read is more sophisticated the vocabulary is richer, it's more diverse. So we need to be aware of that for one. We need to talk, but we need to talk about what we read and we need to make sure that the academic language is part of what we talk. So actual good structured talk is one of the answers to becoming better at reading and to talk about our reading. But I think my starting point would be that the best way to develop your vocabulary is to read lots. The more you read, 
by osmosis, by kind of just cumulative knowledge building, you grow your vocabulary, you become more knowledgeable. So reading more is critical. And we'll often focus on reading for pleasure. And that is also of great value. You know, I'm an English teacher. Um, you know, I've spent my entire life promoting reading of fiction and nonfiction and how important that is. And, and I stand by that ultimately. However, if you're not very good at reading, if you're not a very skilled reader, then reading isn't very pleasurable. And also, if you're not a highly skilled reader, then when you are faced with texts like a geography textbook or a science um, article, then actually without the strategies to read, you could face barriers. And you're not reading for pleasure anyway. You're reading for a purpose. You're reading to extract some important meaning from it. So I think we need to be much more explicit about how well we teach children to read and not just assume reading more is going to happen. Reading more, reading for pleasure is intrinsically a very good thing. It's crucial. But we only read more when we read well. So we've got to attend teaching students strategically to become better readers. And there are different ways to do that. So for really young readers, we start with phonics first and fast, and we try and ensure that they've got a really good, strong sense of alphabetic knowledge and that they can start to build up all this phonetic knowledge and start to decode the words, say the words. Once child gets from you know seven, eight, and, and above, then what becomes predominant is actually not um, the decoding of the words. Children can do that. I've got a 10-year-old girl who can pretty much decode all the words she reads. She can sound them out, but that doesn't mean she can understand all of those words. So what becomes more important is reading comprehension and how well you understand those words. Of, of course, vocabulary is critical in comprehension. We know that's one of the key threads. For me, there are different ways. So you can explicitly teach vocabulary. So you might pre-teach some of the trickier words in a text, in a passage. That would be an effective strategy. And that takes a teacher just to have that word consciousness, just to think, look at text. What do I need to pre-teach? What are the key words? What's the most important knowledge I want children to take away? So pre-teaching vocabulary is one strategy. Also, we know from a lot of evidence um, that teaching children reading strategies is a beneficial um, approach. So strategies like prediction, strategies like questioning, strategies like summarization. And when you take this small group of strategies and you make explicit how to do that, how to ask good questions about a text, how to summarize a text that you've read, then actually these are things that novices don't do very well. We assume they do, but they don't. So weak readers, they might be given um, a, a fiction text and they won't necessarily consider how the front cover or the title might give them hooks and clues into understanding the text and what genre it is. And then they might read the opening page, but struggle to consider how that opening might give them clues and hooks into understanding the rest of the story. And I think what we recognize about weaker readers and word poor readers is that they struggle in countless subtle ways that a teacher doesn't see. It's one of these hidden barriers again. So if we explicitly teach reading strategies 
and help children internalize those so they become skilled when they read, that's really important for comprehension. So one of the strategies might be around you're getting a child to ask questions when they get stuck. And one of them could be, and, and probably should be, what do you do when you don't know a word? That's a really profound question. And I think when you pose it to a lot of teachers, it can stump them a little bit. You know, I'm not quite sure how they do that. They might, they will do it, but not in a deliberate, consistent way. And I think what we need to do is to make sure that a child can independently identify, right, I'm unsure about this word. I'm asking a question about this word. And then what can I do to work out the answer? Now, sometimes just reading the sentence and working out the word from the context of the sentence is helpful and can give us the clue of the word. In a lot of school textbooks, it does that all the time intentionally for us. It, it puts the, a new word in context, it might embolden it, and then it explains what that new word means. But that doesn't always happen. And often the context of a sentence can misdirect. So we might also give a child the awareness that they might use a dictionary. So that would be a strategy when they don't know a word when they're reading. Now, what we also need to know, this is where, again, it, it's a quite complex, complex and sophisticated, that to use a dictionary well, what do you need? Well, you need a lot of word knowledge. You need to not just know the spelling of the word to find it quite quickly. You need to have some word depth to recognize which of the definitions, you know, describes the word, because most words are polysemous. They've got more than one meaning. So you've got to pick the right meaning. So we can train students to use a dictionary, but also recognize that a dictionary isn't always the best tool and it's not always well used. So another compensatory strategy, you've tried the dictionary, you've tried the sentence, they didn't quite work. Then you start to break down the word. You might break it into parts. You might try and recognize what word family it comes from. You might use the grammar of the sentence. Is it the subject of the sentence? Is it a noun? Is it a thing? And, and that mean, might give me some clues about you know, understanding that word. So just the one seemingly simple, but it's part of school every single day for every student is how do we support them to understand when they've got gaps in their vocabulary and as they read, they can repair those gaps. And the first point would be that they know there's a gap in the first place. And that takes us helping children to be more word conscious. So if I go back, we've got pre-teaching vocabulary, We've got teaching comprehension strategies and we've got helping children to recognize when they don't know a word and then what they can do about it. If we were to address those alone and there are other approaches to reading that are supportive. But if we were to approach those alone in a disciplined, structured way that developed over time and helped children internalize these until they became quite skilled, then we'd have successful readers. And there are more strategies, readings, you know, infinitely complex and, and brilliant. But just doing those small, seemingly smaller things well would be a massive benefit for every student we teach. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's really interesting because it is something that I think, yeah, us as educators probably take for granted, not realising that the students might I, not be reading I, I, that effectively. I think we're all guilty of sort of just skipping over words that we don't know as well, even in yeah, reading. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I, one, one of the factors on that, I think sometimes it's okay to just get the gist of a text 
And sometimes it's helpful to do that and to skip over some words. But it actually takes quite a lot of skill to know what words you should skip over and what words are important. So we can't just assume that getting the gist is going to help. And in the in the book, I give examples where we might know most of the words, but if one or two of the words are blacked out, if we don't know one or two of those words, then it, it fundamentally impairs our understanding of the text. And I also talk about how fiction and nonfiction are slightly different. So with nonfiction, you typically have more words that are tier two, you have um, more abstract vocabulary, and you don't have all the clues of a story of fiction, like characters and themes and, and story structures. So I think there's more to know and, and kind of obviously I appeal for teachers to read my book to find all that out. But I think knowing how we read, how to read differently in different contexts and how texts will be read differently is a really important approach. Mm, definitely. And finally, Alex, can you tell our listeners where they can actually buy your book and where they can find you online? Okay, so I think my book's quite um, widely sold. So um, I'm, I'm really proud to be published by Routledge, um, which publishes globally. So you can found, find Closing the Vocabulary Gap on Routledge. Uh, you can all, also find it on Amazon. Um, and I think pre pretty much it's on all the international versions as well. Um, you can get it um, from UK Amazon if um, if you're struggling. Um, also, my I'm on Twitter as Hunting English. Um, if you put my name in Alex Quigley, you'll be able to find me quite easily. And my website is www.theconfidentteacher.com. Um, and hopefully that's a useful website. And I have a section um, on resources. So I have 10 free um, resources, I have articles about vocabulary, I have PowerPoint, I have um, tips for teaching vocabulary all free on the website, so you can dig into it there as well. Fantastic. I know Thank as well when you type in vocabulary gap, you're the first thing that comes yeah. up as well. Yeah, yeah that is true. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, th there was some amazing takeaways and strategies you've been able to give us as well as obviously our listeners. I feel like I've learned so much. Like You were just my teacher. <laughs> and I'm, yeah can't wait to pass on some of that to the kids that's great thank you for having me thank you alex thank you and enjoy the rest of your day over in england cheers thank you you too bye thanks see a lot ya. see ya so michael we just spoke to alex quigley and here's some really interesting things to say so what were your main takeaways uh, well, it was mainly just the strategies and approaches that he actually has to teaching vocabulary, as well as something that I found really interesting in his book, which was the three-tiered hierarchy. And it was just really interesting to hear some insights into how students can progress from those basic words in the first tier to, you know, more academic speaking language in the second tier, and then finally subject-specific stuff in the third tier. Yeah, I think that really hits home, particularly, I think, with my year 12s. Um, I think most of them, even in some of their essays, they just don't tap into those other tiers enough. They just rely too much on that basic language. I think what really stuck out for me is that idea of um, giving words memory hooks and giving spelling memory hooks. And that is how that is such an effective way with, with just the English language as well. When he said it, I immediately thought to sort of year 10 chemistry and I was a terrible chemistry student, but I learnt the periodic table through having memory hooks for each one about how 
to spell the words and, and what the words were. And I think that's quite an interesting concept to even apply now to my subject because I know that did work for me. I did know my periodic table. I was just terrible at everything else <laughs> in chemistry. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I think that's that's going to be something that's great that we can apply. Yeah, definitely. It's a really insightful and yeah, interesting interview. It was great. Yeah, super knowledgeable. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to The Staff Room. And thanks to our guest, Alex Quigley. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, my handle is Michael underscore Royale and Tessa's is Tessa underscore Johnson too. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. And feel free to leave a review and give us any feedback on the show. Listen out for our next episode of The Staff Room, which will be available shortly. I'm Michael Royale. And I'm Tessa Johnson. Till next time.